0: Everybody and welcome back to another episode of Wrapping with Reef Bum. I'm your host Keith perkelhammer So on today's show, my guest is Kevin Berta. Hey, Kevin, what's up, man?
1: Hey, how's it Kevin going? Kevin is
0: one of the owners of Top Shelf Aquatics and also runs their coral farm. And I am really, really psyched to uh, to have Kevin on. And we're gonna kind of dig in in terms of how they uh, kind of like what's what, what's behind the uh, the magic there in, in terms of keeping corals. It's not really magic though, right, Kevin? It's it's a lot of uh, thought put into it, and, and and what have you. But we're going to kind of dig into their reef keeping philosophies and and what they use in terms of equipment and, and their beliefs. And and I also I, I see a whole bunch of um, uh, folks uh, familiar faces or, or viewers. I shouldn't say faces. I don't. I know some of the faces out there. I don't. I don't. I don't know a lot of them. But I know. Uh, I know the screen names here. So uh, Macy's Daddy, Great Bearded Reef can't join us, but. Um, he says uh to make sure to smash that like button so more people can uh can find us on the uh on the live show greg carroll is in the house west coast reaper matt greer what's up folks so you know as uh, as always i um certainly encourage you to comment ask questions we have kevin here for a little while and take advantage of it and, and uh, ask away but i uh as uh, I normally do, have a whole bunch of questions myself, so we'll uh, we'll kind of get through uh, you know some of my questions, but we'll take some of your questions. So Kevin, really, for those uh, folks out there that are not as familiar with uh, TSA, can you give us a little background and history on how you guys came to be? And and actually, and well, while yeah. you do that, you um, didn't mean to interrupt you. While you do that, I'm gonna show I'm gonna oh, show me. a um, a little video. That you guys had passed along that's that shows the uh, the operation so while while you're talking about how you guys came to be I'm gonna show that video
1: well you know overall uh, we started off really I mean it was kind of a, a dream just farming corals and you know i would gotten to the point where I probably had you know 20 tanks running at my house along with a whole bunch of bro troughs various systems even freshwater tanks all sorts of stuff and then I'd actually met alexander who is uh, my business partner who oversees the retail store while he was still in school um you know going for a business degree and we kind of started kicking around the idea of starting a retail store and you know that just started to come to fruition once we got a small spot we slowly built it up expanded that around the time that we started there was actually um believe it or not, one of our competitors, um, Stephen Bays at Reefers Direct, you might know him as Scuba Steve. Yeah. Uh, at the time we worked with him a little bit um, as well, you know, using kind of our buying power together to get distributorship on certain items. And, you know, we'd also compete at the wholesalers and stuff like that. Um, as we grew and over the years, um, they got a point where we were building out the new aquaculture facility and, you know, he had, advanced a lot of things um, at his store, as far as uh, online retail and marketing, and he was planning on relocating his shop. So we just kind of came together and actually merged and became three working partners where, you know, I could focus more on the aquaculture side of things. Uh, Steven could run the marketing and the online and Alex could do more of the retail. So it kind of worked out really well, where all three of us um, could kind of hit where we are strongest and not be so scatterbrained and spread all over the place. Um, but, yeah, that's about 10 years where we're at right now, a little over 10 years.
0: So have you guys always been in the same location in uh, in Florida, Is it, or have you just had to get new um, retail locations because of the growth?
1: Uh, no, when we first started, we were fortunate to find a, a very good vacant space that was uh, attached to a bank. And there were three open units at the time. Well, actually, one that was kind of, um, you know, partially being used. And we picked out the one unit. Um, had a small farm originally built into the back part of the retail store. Uh, we quickly outgrew that, doubled the space. Um, you know, expanded the fish systems, added more coral tanks. Um, you know, bigger inverse system, all that. And then as we were developing our online uh, part of the business that's when we went into the third unit of the building, which became our first larger farm, I would say, when we really started pushing online sales. Um, At that point, we quickly outgrew that farm um, with all those tanks. I mean, there were probably think six, you know, six different large tanks in there. And it just got to the point where, I mean, literally coral on coral and The sumps were full of of Acropora, and it was just unbelievable. So we quickly um, purchased a couple warehouse units that were within walking distance from our retail store uh, that came open for sale um, and then added shortly thereafter another unit that we're using for storage. So the new farm is actually, you know, again, if you're ever in town for the retail store and you look around and you say, hey, you know, they don't have nearly as much coral as I thought. Uh, well, it's just within walking distance. You can always come over, take a tour, buy stuff, um, see a lot of the mother colonies in person, all that, um, see where the online guys post the stuff, actually see the corals that are listed currently on the website in Skew, right over there.
0: Well, you know, as we're looking at the video, it's pretty uh, pretty darn impressive. Uh, Chris Meckley from ACA Aquaculture's comment is, uh, Kevin doesn't let the other guys touch the tanks. He's the controller in quotes, laugh out loud. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Oh, you know, that that's definitely not true. I mean, I got a, a good crew behind me and shout out to uh, Corey, John, and the rest of the farm guys for sure. I mean, as we've grown, the operation has gotten to the point where you, you really have to have some people that you can trust. And there's so many moving parts involved that, you know, you just would never be able to do something like this on your own. So, you know, I would say, um, yeah, it's definitely good to have good people. And, you know, we're always looking for more help, too. So if you want to find a job in the industry, hit us up.
0: There you go, folks. If uh, you want to you uh, get your fantasy job, then uh, look uh, reach out to Kevin there. They're, they're looking for folks. So, Kevin, how many gallons do you, uh, do you guys have in your system, your coral uh, farm?
1: I would say the main grow-out systems are probably around 15,000 gallons. But we also have, obviously, the retail systems that we do a lot of aquaculture in as well. Um, And then other, you know, the fish systems and and even the invert system where we sometimes grow mushrooms and things like that, that enjoy the really high nutrients and aquaculture, some of the macroalgae and things that we sell on the website. So, um, yeah, I would say true farm gallonage is somewhere around that 15,000 that's
0: number. big uh, Macy's daddy says man my credit card is trying to jump out of my wallet <laughs> yeah you're looking through the website right now I don't know if it's that or cool. the highlight rail I just showed that um, has has uh, ah. has some uh, drooling but um, so I don't want to get into the whole uh, you know name game thing but you guys do have some interesting names Uh TSA Bill Murray, the TSA Dan Aykroyd, who's the uh, Saturday Night Live uh, fan at uh, Top Shelf?
1: Well, you know, when it comes to the names, I mean, we, we try to keep it kind of light overall. Um, we've always, I mean, I personally am a huge Bill Murray fan. I mean, especially the movie Life Aquatic. I have a big, um, you know, 60 by 40 picture in my office of uh, him. But definitely always liked the comedy movies and, you know, Ghostbusters growing up and all that. So, You know, we kind of picked that name just because it it seemed to uh, just epitomize the badassness that, you know, you had there with uh, Bill Murray overall. And, um, you know, a lot of the names we do, I would say, are more logical as far as, you know, the color schemes and things like that, that you would associate with the name or, you know, that sort of thing. Uh, we have a whole series, though. I mean, of different hot peppers, alcoholic beverages. I even had, um, you know, one of my ex-employees who was kind of a hippie, had a whole strain series of uh, different marijuana corals. You so, you know, there's a little bit of something there for everyone in the name game. But it's good for really identifying them. And, you know, instead of saying, um, oh, that purple and green acro that's really shaggy over there, you can just say, oh, well, you know, that's the... Great Ape or something along those lines.
0: Tra- Travis Barkley uh, uh, says, uh, TSA has the best corals in town, exclamation point. The farm is amazing. I was there today buying some frags, exclamation point. So uh, one of the customers is... Uh, oh,
1: glad to hear it. Yeah. Definitely. Um, and you guys want to keep us in business and keep us growing. So, you know, we appreciate all that for
0: sure. Um, so I know you guys, you know, sell um, LPS, LPS. Uh, I don't know if softies are, 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 part of that or not, but, uh, I'm an SPS nut. So I think, um, the, uh, the, the focus of my questions are going to be on, on SPS and, and, you know, anybody that wants to, uh, diverge from that in terms of the viewers and ask questions about, uh, non SPS corals, go for it. But I, I kind of wanted to dig a little bit, uh, into your, uh, philosophies about keeping SPS corals. So, um, yeah, let's uh, let's kind of like start off about filtration and talk about the biological filtration. What do you guys utilize in terms of biological filtration for your, uh, for your farm?
1: Well, I would say traditionally our philosophies overall tend to be kind of an old school, new school hybrid. Um, as far as biological, you know, I would say that's more old school. We do put a lot of live rock. Um, in a lot of the systems, I tried to, you know, even have a lot of natural rock from the wild that we had sashed um, to incorporate into the systems. Um, that being said, I, I add a little extra stability just because it's space. Um, we're using the max MaxSpec uh, biomedia balls, the spheres, and we've had pretty good luck with those things overall, really colonizing a lot of bacteria. Um, so also in addition to that, we do put sand in a lot of our tanks. I tend to run a lot of our farm systems almost like uh, a display tank attached to frag tanks for stability and, um, you know, again, more biological there as well.
0: So you guys also utilize cryptic zones, right? Can you talk to us about um, the cryptic mm-hmm. zones? I mean, is that essentially where the live rock is, um, you know, the majority of the live rock is? I guess there's some live rock in your, um, your, your tanks as well, Well. Wow. Well, for the sheer
1: volume that we had, I mean, I I wish I could fit more rock into the cryptic zone, but we just don't have enough soft space. Um, And and realistically, it's not necessarily there for the filtration aspects as far as taking particulate out of the water. Generally, we accomplish that more with uh, mechanical filtration with socks and uh, sometimes filter uh, cups and, and mesh and things along those lines. But Occasionally, in some of the systems and in the past too, especially on some of our um, zoa growouts, we've even had certain socks that were bypassed. And having a lot of that extra filter feeders growing in there definitely can help polish the water naturally without stripping out too much from the system overall. So, when and uh, you know, a lot of the newer systems too will even take clippings and, and mature pieces of rock with a lot of natural sponge and different filter feeders and kind of trickle them in there too to seed it as well.
0: What about bacteria? What do you guys do in terms of seeding the, um, you know, a new system with bacteria to get it going?
1: Well, as far as our cycling processes go, we usually use ammonia chloride to simulate the fish, fish load. And um, in addition to that, we may dose a little bit of phosphate as well. Just to kind of jumpstart the algae blooms and things like that. Sometimes ghost feeding. Um, the bacteria that we dose usually are a combination of uh, Microbacter 7 sometimes. Or we've even incorporated XLN as well. Um, sometimes we've used Dr. Tim's a little in the past too. You know, that stuff works really well. But it's a little harder for us to get uh, without having to order it direct from our distributors. So... You know, we're usually not in that much of a rush, so it's not something that I um, tend to worry about, you know, putting coral in literally two weeks after we get the rock and water going, you know. Yeah,
0: I had, excuse me, I had Jack Candle on last last week from Brightwell. and We Mm -hmm. talked a lot about, uh, you know, MB7 and and, uh, the clean product. So um, do do you guys Mm -hmm. um, do any maintenance uh, dosing with MB7 or is it kind of like more of a um, thing to use at the beginning when you're uh, getting the thing system going? Typically,
1: we would just use it at the beginning. Um, we don't really find the need to dose a lot of bacteria overall. Um, sometimes in maintenance accounts, or if there's tanks that are popping up with, um, you know, different cyanobacterias or, or some sort of algae, uh, extra bacterial dosing would be something we sometimes incorporate either Microbacter 7, or if we're combating something like dinoflagellates, especially too, we would incorporate extra bacteria dosages, um, you know, sometimes remediation from Sechem to, um, Dino specifically we've, we um, had a lot of luck with waste away gel from Dr. Tim.
0: Interesting. Have you guys also utilized uh, UV depending on, I guess, what kind of, um, dino's you're, uh, battling?
1: Yeah. Osteopsis is definitely the one that has been most prevalent and I, I know you're, you're probably going to um, chime in on, on being more sterile with a lot of the dry rock. Uh, but I would say it puts us at risk for a lot of that. Like, like when I first got in the hobby, um, you know, I hadn't had to deal with dinos hardly ever for probably the first, you know, seven, eight years that I was in it. And then, you know, definitely more prevalent in recent years. But, but the UV is, is a game changer for us, um, especially with osteopsis. Uh, but the biggest thing I would say, it, it's having enough wattage and enough turnover to truly be impactful. Or from a hobbyist standpoint, sometimes even just having a temporary one that you can drop a pump in the display tank and pump the water straight through the UV and then right back in. um, will get a little bit more direct effect on the actual um, reproduction of that strain.
0: Yeah, I've um I've had two battles with the with dinos. One one time, you know, for my uh, 187 gallon tank, it was uh, four or five years ago, and I I, I didn't uh, I didn't have a microscope then. I didn't put I didn't put them under the uh, the scope, and I, I was pretty much throwing everything at them but the kitchen sink. But I did not use UV, and I ended up just re- rebooting mm-hmm. the tank because the corals had just like been beaten up. You know, because of all the uh, the blackouts, hydrogen peroxide I've been using. You know, it was just like one thing after another, and they, they got beat up pretty good. And um, But that tank turned around because I ended up rebooting with live rock instead of dry rock, which, which is what I started that tank with. And then my new Peninsula tank, which I did start with live rock that um, I got from um, KP Aquatics. I ended up, after the seventh month mark, getting uh, dinos. But, you know, th- th- this time I did uh, ID them, and they were the Ostreoptus uh, strain mm-hmm. so i got a uv uh sterilizer and you know it was just a matter of days after uh i manually removed as many as possible the uh the dinos were were gone and you know knock mm-hmm. on wood three months uh has passed since i've kept the uv going and in, mm-hmm. and in fact i've kind of changed my whole mind about having uv on my systems. not only am i you know did i keep the uv going on that new system but i put a uv on my established system and i just think there's just so many um benefits to, to having the UV one is like, it's a great preventative measure for, uh, for dinos and, mm-hmm. and two, you know, there's, um, you know, some fish parasite that it will, uh, you know, kill. It could also help potentially with some, um, problematic algae. But, um, you know, I, I, my understanding and the, the reason why I flipped around is that most beneficial bacteria are colonizing the rocks and the sand and other surfaces in the tank and are not free floating. So it's not going to do too much harm. you guys use u v as well right on a constant basis?
1: yeah, I'm kind of in the same uh realm as you as far as philosophically when I came up in the hobby, you know you were always told, uh you know you don't want to over sterilize the water, it's going to take out too much of the good stuff and and you know not as much of the bad stuff um so I didn't really use it for years and years. then we slowly incorporated smaller units um even in the first wave of farm tanks when we started popping up with the dinos initially when we were cycling and they were really brand new and raw because obviously for us you know everything had to be sterilized for the farm systems uh, because of our strict quarantine process so you know we actually um had to kind of replumb them in a way that would allow significantly higher turnover rate and that made a big difference and a lot of them we actually added a second uv so now most of the systems, we're usually just running one and we'll kind of dial the flow rate accordingly to what we're targeting. And then the second one almost acts as as like an emergency boost hmm. if we do see something pop up that we're really trying to, to hammer out, like, you know, osteopsis or or Dino, or you know any other strain specifically
0: yeah no I think um, I think there's just I, I haven't seen any uh, side effects bad side effects by using UV on a constant basis so I am um, I'm definitely digging it um, what about uh, activated carbon you guys use activated carbon on your systems
1: uh, yeah yeah we definitely do um, it's more of an intermittent use uh, we cycle that through and and, and refresh the reactors um, usually about once a month or so. Um, carbon actually was one of the things that we used as a strong multi-prong a, a, a attack when we were trying to target the dinos yeah. too. And you know, after an in-depth conversation I had with Dr. Tim um, about that, he said a lot of them really feed on the organics in the water, so that's where we were really using you know the waste away gel the UV and heavy, heavy reactors full of carbon. Um, you know, that being said, the carbon, it's not, you know, being changed and refreshed constantly. It's usually exhausting after about a week period, but it's just kind of refresh the water and and just be a, a general absorbent in the system. Uh, w- no one, help one more
0: question for you about UV and dynos. Um, I think there's some folks that believe that, um, or there's anecdotal evidence that you know, if, if you have a, a dyno outbreak that you should have that, the input and the output of the UV actually in that display tank with the outbreak and not in the sump. Do you, um, do you buy into that or? Yeah, that that's, that's what
1: I was, um, trying to explain. Maybe I didn't word it right, but yeah, that, that can allow a little bit more, um, contact specifically with the dyno and when it's reproducing. So that is the best way to do it. It's a heck of an eyesore, but you know, if you're looking for quick results, um, you will get them slightly faster that way. That being said, for our farm systems, that's not as practical because there's multiple tanks and, um, you know, multiple sumps even that we keep lights on with coral down there too. So that's the main reason why we just upscaled the UV and added second mm. units on there as well and, and and have dedicated pumps feeding them rather than being teed off on a manifold.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I put mine in my sump... Um you know, when I had that outbreak, because like, like, like you said, it's a, it's a definitely an eyesore and, um, you know, Mm -hmm. so it worked in, in the sump, but I was certainly prepared to, uh, to, to put it on the display Mm -hmm. if if I needed to, but, uh, Oh yeah, you gotta do what you gotta do. exactly.
1: But sure sure beats blackouts and all the stressful other treatments, you know, Dino X and things like that that you could throw at it, which, you know, are hit or miss depending on the, yeah. So you guys
0: don't do blackouts when you uh, encounter dino's? Uh, we had in the
1: past and had mixed results, but it seemed like for osteopsis specifically that that just wasn't enough to yeah. keep it from slowly coming back. You know, at one point we had, had blacked it out, um, I think three times, and we just had co- coincided that with Dinox and a handful of other things, and that's around the time that I, um, you know, this was on one one farm system that we were just having a lot of issues on initially. Um, but that's when I reached out to Dr. Tim and chatted about a few different methods, and and that's when we also started ramping up the UD as well. Added a second unit to that. System.
0: Travis Barkley gave us a little super chat. Thank you, Travis. Appreciate all the content, great information. Keep up the good work. Thank you, thank you. Um, so Kevin, you mentioned that you guys have some sand in your uh, your systems. If if you were setting up a new, um, you guys do um, in, installs for folks to um, set up systems yeah. and whatnot. If somebody came to you and said, I want to start an SPS dominant tank and, um, you know, I, I um, would, so I guess question number one is what would, would it be a, uh, would you guys start that with dry rock and then question number two is would it be, you know, would it have sand or no sand?
1: Well, I mean, realistically, most of your options these days are dry rock. Um, uh, and we've had very good luck on our installations using it you just have to go through the proper processes um as far as sand goes i've always been a big fan specifically um you know i just like the look you know it just looks more natural to me um it doesn't restrict you as much as as far as what fish you can keep in there as well um you know and you may just have to go with a little different grade of substrate for an sps system if you're really trying to ramp that flow up that's why we sell a lot more of the, the reef floor special grade or reef sand for the live. Um, and that stuff is a little more coarse and won't blow around as much. You just have to make sure you get, you know, something in there to stir it, like a handful of conch snails or Neisserius and Saraths and sansara stuff like that. Or even just rake it periodically when you're doing your maintenance just to, to really keep it yep. clean.
0: So, um, you know, in, in terms of dry rock, you 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 personally – are an artist because you um, you guys create well. I guess it's primarily you. You're you're creating. I guess with bulk resupply coin is uh, NSA aquascapes. I'm going to start showing you know some of these uh, aquascapes that you guys have created for uh, customers and actually ship across the whole uh, United States. You want to talk about um, these uh, these aquascapes are pretty pretty impressive looking.
1: Yeah, I mean I would say aquascaping was just something that. I got into, I mean, like everyone probably for their first tank, you were just so excited to get it going. You just threw all your rocks in a giant pile. And then, you know, you soon realize that that's not really the best way to run it. Um, You tend to get a lot more waste buildup and nutrient buildup. And when you're leaning it on the back wall, it just, it just doesn't allow for nearly as much flow over all system. Um, So, you know, I started uh, buying the Marco kits a long time ago with the concrete mortar. And building the structures and ever since I did the first one it just wasn't really an option to go back to me it was just such a better way of doing it where you could keep most of the rock off the sand bed so a lot of times the systems run as far as cleanliness more like a bare-bottom tank uh, by minimizing all that rock contacting the sand getting flow through it and like I said not really having to have it lean on anything um, and just going a little more minimal overall to uh, really makes a big difference there. But just over the years, you know, I've moved on from using a lot of the natural Haitian rock. I've done Caribbean structures and, and now mostly specialize in the Marco rock structures with a lot of the, the shelving um, style, more bonsai inspired, I would say, um, you know, also a handful of arch style too, if that's your thing. But, yeah, we do offer those services and, and ship them out too. It's just kind of a, a thing I do to de-stress after work sometimes <laughs> or if I'm in the garage, you know. Uh, I know it sounds crazy, but yeah, it's just fun. For no, me. they're
0: really awesome looking stuff. So, um, a couple of questions for you about that. Uh, how long does it take you to do one of those aquascapes? Let's say you're doing one for a, uh, 120 gallon tank or something like that. Is that like a week's worth of, uh, extracurricular time on your hands there? Or is that, uh, how many man hours, I guess, do you put into that sort of thing?
1: it really depends on the structure and what the customer wants i mean when i deal with people i always you know look at it from a perspective of i'm trying to build something for you and and your dream tank so you know i talk to them about what coral they're going to keep what kind of flow so we can really plan spacing um you know if it's a peninsula tank obviously it's going to take more time because you have to consider it being multi-sided and looking good from all angles um so really it just comes down to to the the size and time um and difficulty that someone's looking for but you know usually i can churn them out at this point in a week or two um i've gotten pretty quick with it just from experience i mean really it used to be something that sometimes i would work on a large structure for two months but you know now definitely using some of the different methods and techniques i've developed i can i can streamline that process significantly
0: So how, Uh, how, um, how do you guys ship something like that? Do you just, uh, essentially kind of, um, take large chunks and, and, uh, take it apart and ship it that way? Or do you try to like ship it, um, whole and just pack 10,000 styrofoam peanuts in the thing? I mean, how do you, uh, how do you guys ship that sort of thing?
1: Yeah. So we actually prefer if everyone picks them up, but you know, that's not (laughs) not you know, we do sell a lot of local ones, but if we do ship, um, we build a wooden crate essentially attached to a pallet so we can put it on a freight truck and we're not having to worry about FedEx kicking it around or anything like that. And then there's a local company who has an expanding foam machine that we use. So, you know, we would essentially fill all the gaps in the crate around the structures and, um, you know, pack it in that way. And we've had really good success with, um, you know, getting there in one piece. I mean, sometimes there might be minor damage on a, a small branch, which is usually pretty easy to fix with a little glue and accelerator. So you get, um, but yeah, we do it a lot.
0: Comments here about the, uh, the structures. It looks cool. ACI agriculture, uh, waiting for Kevin to build one for our office. Uh,
1: yeah, yeah. I know Chris is definitely itching to get one for that, that meat coral tank. So, you know, we were chatting about that over at uh, Aqua Shell in Chicago. So, you know, I got three more projects on the books so I got to clear off. But once I'm done with that, you know, we can talk.
0: You might have a few more after tonight. <laughs> yeah. Well, you
1: know what? I, I like to stay busy.
0: So, um, that's not a problem. so if, all right, let's, I actually reached out to you guys last year about this, and because um, I was tinkering with the idea of getting one of these for my uh, peninsula tank, but then I just, uh, I just, I'm such an old school guy. I was like, you know, if I can get live rock, I'm gonna get the live rock. So that's the route I went. But it was, it was tempting, you know, to uh, to think about that because mm-hmm. it's just so neat. But how, how. Um, how do you guys set up so there's not you know if you're doing like a minimalistic aquascape there's not a lot of rock in there there's not a lot of places for the bacteria to colonize what what do you guys do in terms of um you know if you're doing installs or recommending you know um how somebody can build a bacteria better you're just using a lot of recommend a lot of biomedia in the sump or are you are you you know recommending cryptic zones with a lot of live rock in those uh, cryptic zones dosing bacteria on a continual basis how, you know how do you how do you support life in a tank like that that doesn't have a lot of um, <clears throat> surface area inside for the bacteria to colonize?
1: Well, you you kind of hit the nail on the head. I answer with, my own question uh, is that what I? Uh... <laughs>
0: of things that you,
1: that you mentioned, yeah. I mean, it, it really depends on how minimal the aquascape is, how heavy of a fish load the customer is anticipating um, doing, if they have live sand or not, uh, and I think overall. You know, as the hobbies evolved, we've realized that you don't need as much rock as you used to think you did a lot of times um, to keep things stable. Uh, but we do put biomedia a lot of times in the sump, um, you know, either the Max Spec or some of the Seachem um, different varieties that we offer in the in the retail store. Um, and then obviously cycling the tanks and maturing the rock with usually what we recommend, the, um, the um, ammonia and different bacterias. And a lot of times customers will even request chips of, of mature live rock to kind of scatter along uh, the substrate and on the rocks to, to seed it and you know add a lot of that beneficial life in addition to adding different strains of copepods and things like that uh, as well and i mean heck if you have a big system and you have room for a cryptic fuse i mean all the better um, a lot of the new red sea tanks even have um, you know m- multiple refugium options so for our new display, I was thinking about using um, the split front zone in front of the protein skimmer on the uh, Reefer XL1000 um, as a cryptic fuse, and then the larger one is a standard refugium.
0: Interesting. So, Insane Reefer, thank you mm-hmm. so much for the uh, for the super chat. The, uh, the question is, just got frags from TSA, tested your water, and it's at 9.4. Mm-hmm. My water is at 8.3. I'm assuming that's alkalinity. How much um, time mm-hmm. recommended for that one point swing acclimation wise?
1: Uh, I mean, re- really, if you're going down, but I'd be surprised if it was at 9.4 or you might be using a different test kit than us. I mean, our systems, um, you know, never really get above nine based on the Saliper test that we do. Um, But either way, I mean, minor alkalinity swings going down aren't really a concern. It's usually if you're spiking up significantly that you have to worry about um, stress on stuff. So, I mean, if you're, you know, following more of the Red Sea method of keeping your alkalinity really, really high uh, at that point, you know, you may have a little bit more of a risk factor.
0: So you guys are not um, using any uh, automated alkalinity uh, monitors at this point in time? You're just good old-fashioned salad for test kit?
1: Well, I mean, I'm not going to lie. Obviously, the dream is to, uh, you know, just just put it into a robot and have it do all the work for us. But I don't think we're quite there yet. Um, You know, we installed some tridents. And I just think for for our systems, with the demand that we're pumping in, because like you stated, I mean, a lot of our systems are are mostly um, SPS dominant. And the amount of massive colonies, it just wasn't really accurate enough to where we could trust it a hundred percent. Now we are actually experimenting with a Mastertronic recently. And so far the results have been very, very good on that without Delinity. Um, you can actually pick a lot of the, the different test kits that you're using on that, which is a nice feature as well. And the alt's been spot on for a month. It's just really long-term. Um, we'll have to see how well it holds up and how consistent it is to what we're doing. But I think at the end of the day, we'll never fully trust that. You know, a lot of times you automate too much, you get a little complacent, and when something doesn't work, then you can have your tank go south real quick. And for us, I mean, if we didn't have a doser running for even overnight, you could drop two alt points with the consumption rates that we have.
0: Yeah, Chris says uh, I told you he was the controller, uh, laughing with tears coming out there. So yeah, I'm assuming that you guys would not be control would not allow a, a Mastertronic or the uh, the Trident to actually do the controlling, just to act as a monitor. Uh, eventually we probably would, but we would just have to back that up
1: with coding restrictions. So there would be no way to, you know, have significant swings or adjustments to be automated. And then we would also have, have to probably, um, I mean, it would reduce the amount that we have to test. I mean, you'd be surprised right now we're doing full spot checks twice a week on all the systems. And then every day, um, even twice a day, we're actually testing alkalinity on a lot of the high demand systems, um, just to keep things on point and pretty much water testing every day for spot checks when things are a little out of range. So you know anything we can do to reduce labor we're open to. so if it proves that it can be trusted long term, i'm I'm totally on board for letting go a little bit of that and um, kicking those things online to dose. but I, I just need to see it Yeah. Sense.
0: I hear you. So um folks just want to remind you to hit that like button, smash that like button so we can get. Um more of the uh, more folks out there tuning into the uh, to the stream and and I also encourage you to uh, to ask away in terms of the questions uh, for uh, for Kevin in the chat so Kevin what are you guys doing right now for calcium and alkalinity uh, supplementation are you using um, two-part or is it a um, calcium reactor
1: uh, so currently we are actually getting the majority of the dosing done through Uh, CULT reactors, and then we dose Red Sea three-part in addition to them. Now, the big system, the biggest SPS system that we just set up, we're looking to blend in a calcium reactor mostly just to reduce some of our costs, but we definitely are still going to incorporate the the CULT reactors as well, just because of the benefits on pH boosting overall and the stability we've been able to achieve with that. Um, And it's definitely a little cheaper than the three-part dosing too.
0: Yeah. I, um, I had been using a two part ESV on, on my, you know, SPS real SPS heavy tank. And it's just, I was dosing like mm-hmm. 300 mls a day with that, um, for that tank and it just got oh, so yeah. expensive. So I ended up switching over to a calcium reactor and actually Chris, um, I, he, um, I had been dosing a uh, cockwasser, you know, in the past when I ran calcium reactors, but, uh, Chris kind of put that uh, bug in my head again, and and um, you know it certainly helped in terms of using a calcium reactor and dosing the caulk washer in terms of elevating that pH. What do you guys like? What, what's the what's the butter zone for you in terms of the pH for your uh, systems?
1: Well, I mean, ideally, if we could keep it around you know eight four consistently. I mean, I would say our swing, depending on the system, anywhere from eight two to to eight five in that zone. Most of them we try to keep pretty stable 8.3 to 8.5 throughout the day. You know, obviously perfection would be ideal, but we're dosing so much and there's a lot of variables as far as stacking the Kalkwalzer more at night intervals and dosing the alkalinity more during the day intervals so we can balance the swings of the pH and the alkalinity to keep both of them pretty flat So just being there's so much demand... It's hard to keep it perfect. Um, we do also work on reverse light cycles with the refugiums. And then even some of our sump aquariums, we, we run on reverse light cycles too to help level things off even a little bit more. So
0: we got Jake Adams in the house says a real reef talk right here. <laughs>
1: oh, it's great to see you, Jake. <laughs> um,
0: let's talk about circulation. You know, I mean, that's always very mm-hmm. important for um, for SPS. And, and you guys have a really cool, interesting way in terms of how you grow out your, your SPS colonies. Talk about these uh, arrays that you have. I, you know, I, I think uh, we got to look at them in, in the video that uh, we ran at the beginning of this live stream, but talk about these PVC arrays and, and how um, you elevate these corals and allow the circulation to get uh, through.
1: Well, really the idea uh, was just, we, we didn't really like the frag racks putting large colonies on them, because it was hard to get good flow transfer, at least especially underneath the colonies, um, and get good circulation as a whole. Um, So what we did is we experimented on one of the old farm systems and actually used couplings that I had epoxied and glued to um, the rock to make it where we could have stems and have the coral be removable. So the colonies, we would actually be able to lift up, cut a lot of the frags and um, do it that way. But the array was kind of the next iteration of that where we could keep it really even and flat across the board and kind of customize it based on the size of the colonies. And, And we could put a lot of the rock below as well for fish habitat and keep it elevated off the sand bed as well too, just to keep that sand a little cleaner overall. And uh, get really good even flow all the way around the coral, um, not just kind of blowing over top of it or slamming down into the racks and that sort of thing.
0: Yeah, it's a neat concept, you know. It's just kind of like a modular thing where, like you said, if you need to pull a, uh, a colony out to uh, to do some, oh, we got the uh, the cat <laughs> knocking on the door there. Let me just uh,
1: hit my lights here. It's getting a little oh, dark.
0: Gotcha. Um, yeah, no, I was just saying that um, it, it's a neat idea, you know, because it's it's um, it's tough. Like you said, you know, I, I had, uh, years ago, I had started with these, um, acrylic frag racks that, um, were essentially mm-hmm. pieces of acrylic with the, uh, with the holes pre-drilled in them for frag plugs. But, um, that mm-hmm. was, you know, and I, and I did that to try to avoid egg crate because I was always afraid that a crate could leach in the phosphates and cause algae. And, but the problem with those.
1: Oh yeah. crate uh, was always a nightmare for us. Yeah. Too. And
0: I, 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 still use a uh, crate. Um, uh-huh. I haven't found a better mouse trap yet in terms of frag, um, plugs, but, um, yeah, the problem with those acrylic plate, those solid acrylic plates with the holes drilled them is like, they just, the circulation is, it gets limited because you, know, you can't get the water passing through them. And they almost, you know, my were is getting blown around because I was like cranking a lot of flow on those, uh, those tanks. So it's, it's, it's a great idea, you know, and I, and I think, um, I even played around with putting... I don't know if you guys ever tried this, but just putting the uh, the frag tiles on the bottom of the tank and you know doing the grow out on the bottom of the tank but again, I always got a lot of detritus underneath the tiles, so that didn't seem to work for me so it's it's always been a challenge with a uh, with a frag tra- tank to try to try to keep it um, algae free and and um, mm-hmm. it's not easy so, you know, it's a
1: yeah and most of our tanks are taller too, so the array. Um, Works out well for us, whereas it may not work as well for other people who use more shallow troughs or or have, you know, maybe a 12 inch tall frag tank as well. Um, You know, then you might be a little more suited for something that was more at, you know, base level. But for us, we just really wanted to cram as much water volume into the systems as we possibly could that was one of the downfalls in the old farm is it just got to the point where the coral density was so high relative to the gallonage that the dosing levels were just exceeding what we were even really supposed to be putting in as a daily dose at that point. And, you know, the corals definitely suffered and we, we had to start upping the nutrients even to some crazy high numbers where the, um, in the old farm, when it was really maxed out, we actually had the Monty's bleaching unless we kept the nitrates up close to 60. Whoa. So okay. it was wild. Um, that's the main reason why we just packed the tanks and sumps pretty much everywhere we can and make them nice and big, uh, in a perfect world, I'd have a massive warehouse and I would probably have, you know, thousand gallon barrels attached to each system and, and just do it that way to add extra water volume. But we just did not have the room yeah. for
0: that. So what uh, Jake says, uh, Leonardo's reef is replicating the PVC coral structure all the way in Holland. Yeah, whatever happened to that uh, That that, that guy he used to have the uh, this uh, pretty incredible Thread it was it might have been on reef central. I don't know if it was on reef to reef or reef central, but um, Haven't really seen anything about his tanks um, recently. So a couple of um, questions here for you Kevin insane reefer um, says uh kevin never had luck keeping a fox flame i heard that it does better on the lower side is that true in terms of the fox flame
1: uh i would say that it's definitely not one of the higher light acropora that we keep um it really depends too you know i would say a little higher nutrients sometimes for that type of coral and we keep it more on the outskirts of our grow out tanks just so it's not getting slammed with the direct light right in the middle and we tend to get really good color and growth in, in those areas. Um, you know par wise if you're running a real heavy uh, blue spectrum overall you know you could target maybe around 350 micromole um, that works for us if you're keeping you know a decent detectable nutrient level but you always got to be a little careful too again if you're bottoming bottoming out certain cores like that you can have more issues yep. with
0: So, um, Greg Carroll is wondering about lighting in terms of what you guys use. That was on my uh, list of questions asked, but why don't we get into that now, Kevin, in terms of lighting. What do you guys um, light your farms with in terms of the, uh, you know, just in terms of the SPS?
1: Um, So, we do run a little bit of um, variety and hybrid lighting in some of the systems. You know, a lot of the newer ones are pretty much strictly radions. And we've had great success with those lights, but a lot of the heavy SPS dominant tanks, we incorporate um, metal halide lights using 400 watt radiums um, for the daylight period and then tend to kind of tie in light daylight and the rest of the blue cycles and the heavy UV um, and deep, deep blues from the radions in those zones too. We also have a few tanks that we're running uh, more of T5 dominant with ORFEC, bar blue light supplements um, to juice. Really overall, we're just trying to see which ones get the best results and see if certain corals color up better under different lighting and you know optimize wherever we can. Um, but we've been pretty happy with a lot of the different results we've been getting in most systems. So I would say for the average hobbyist, I'd be happy with, with Radions just by themselves at home. Um, but for us personally, any little boost in growth that we're able to get is huge on the scale that we're doing it. So, you know, obviously the metal halides are the closest thing to to natural sunlight. So, you know, just getting that incorporated in there and not having any spectral gaps can make a a difference overall and blended in.
0: What do you guys like in terms of spectrum for the radions?
1: Um, the, The radions, I mean, I would say most of our, most of our programs that we're running, pretty much peak out at 20 Kelvin as far as the white cycle and they run for about you know four to six hours with the whites and usually run for about 12 hours total where they're ramping from a deep blue to more of that white spectrum um, We do tend to strip out some of the other uh, different colors like the reds and the greens and you know I tend to go a little lighter on the um, uh, on the uh, full spectrum white, just for coloration purposes, mostly, and to reduce algae growth, since we do keep the nutrient levels a little higher in a lot of our systems.
0: Yep. Um, what about the? Uh, you know, so you mentioned the, you're using T5s and the Orfix. What What are your thoughts at this point about uh, that combination? And and, um, and then a follow-up question: In terms of, have you guys thought about some of the other uh, panel lights out there, like the uh, the Neptune Sky and the and the Philips, uh, Coral Care?
1: Uh, so the Orfec T5 combo, I mean, we definitely were pulling some pretty insane colors um, in the one system that we we're using it on. Uh, but that was only about, a, I would say, a three by four foot area. And I mean, in a perfect world, we would have experimented with having different frags of the same coral cut at the same time and, and documented growth and coloration over a long period. But, you know, honestly, I was trying to build all the new wings of the farm. So we weren't really able to focus as much on that. But I would say it definitely did produce some really, really good coloration on certain pieces. So I was happy with it overall, enough so that we did replicate that light on one of the newer systems um, where we have one full tank dedicated to that. Um, so we can get a little bit more um, information as far as those go. As far as the new lighting, um, I don't have any experience with the Philips Coral Care or the new lights from Neptune, but we actually have a few of them waiting to go over one of our new display tanks and we're actually about to hang some in the farm as well. What I want to do is put them on a system with the radions and really kind of contrast and compare the results that we're getting with the same water so that way we can, you know, see what's going on with that. Um, I like what they're doing as far as Having more spread for the average hobbyist and and better color blending. Um, It can be a little difficult for us sometimes because we mount our lights so high up though. So sometimes punch can be a little difficult to achieve in our systems. Um, So we'll have to see how they they pan out in that regard. Um, So I'm looking forward to testing them out. We've also discussed trying to put some of those new Kessel cannons over uh, maybe one of the SPS areas too, just to really again compare and contrast the, uh, the new the new lighting out there
0: how, how important is par for, for you guys in terms of growing out SPS is that a, um, a big thing that you pay attention to do you do you, um, do a lot in terms of trying to um, you know dial that in on on your grow out tanks
1: yeah I mean I'd say we pull out the meter you know probably every couple of weeks um, it's something that typically we would initially set up and dial it in based on previous success and results for the type of coral we're trying to target. Um, but, you know, obviously once in a while you'll look at a system and you'll say, hey, things are looking a little light. And if the nutrients are about the same and we haven't had any swings or any other variables, then we may try to reduce that a little bit, tweak some of the numbers slightly. Um, you know, you gotta let the coral kind of speak to you uh, when you make those judgment calls and determinations. So that's where the visual inspections really come into play um, in the farm. And we try to take time to really look over all the systems every single day, almost every inch, just to make sure that we're not having issues. and You know, there's just so much stuff in there. It takes a long time. So that's where, uh, you know, the team really comes in handy being able to help out with all that and give feedback so we can kind of tweak that as we go.
0: Yep. So, uh, you know, again, folks feel uh, free to uh, ask away in terms of some questions here. I, Jake is asking about the uh, the dry rock versus live rock discussion. Yeah, we uh, we did talk about mm-hmm. that, Jake. We uh, we even showed some of the uh, the cool uh, NSA uh, aquascapes that Kevin has uh, created for uh, for customers. Some pretty uh, pretty incredible stuff. Um, there is a uh, a question about zoas here, uh, Kevin. Any advice on growing out blue hornets or zoas in general?
1: Well, we we tend to run the nutrient levels a little bit higher in those tanks and definitely feed a little bit more of the particulate foods for those guys. Um, In general, flow is important. That's one thing that I think sometimes people don't realize with with the zoas. They're a lot more prone to infections uh, if they're not getting a good surge where they're kind of keeping them clean and when I, when I see them real happy, especially things like those blue hornets that are, are more of the small polyp variety, uh, is when they kind of get that, that flutter in the polyps where you'll see the skirts kind of dancing around periodically. Um, so just really setting up your, your pumps to, to get that rolling through and then getting more of a blue spectrum overall can, can benefit those too.
0: So we have a um, question from Macy's Daddy. Uh, what do you guys do other than uh, three-part? You know, any uh, trace elements, any uh, aminos, coral food, stuff like that?
1: Yeah, coral feeding is definitely a big part of what we do, um, in addition to the, the fish feeding. I mean, I don't know if you've seen a lot of the videos with the farm, but we do stock heavily with the fish. Um, so, therefore, many of the corals get fed naturally that way, uh, just from, you know, the fish right. food. And the nutrients that they provide. But in addition to that, we'll also do various blends of benefits when our nutrient levels, as far as phosphates, are kind of where we want them or sometimes a little higher. Um, and then we'll hit fuel, usually about twice a week, for aminos. Um, then we do a blend of different uh, reed, reed mariculture, reef nutrition products as well, mostly phyto, rotifers, oyster feast uh, for the filter feeders. And we'll hit that typically around three times a week, but if the phosphates are trending upwards, we'll we'll lay off those foods as well. Um, you just got to let the water test dictate what you do and try to feed as much and provide as much nutrition to the coral as you can get away with without negatively affecting that overall. Um, yeah, so I would say that generally that's what we do.
0: Do you guys do, um, ICP testing or, you know, do you just, um, kind of stick to, um, you know, some basic, uh, testing of the, uh, the water parameters or do you ever have to kind of like dig a little deeper into something that might, um, need investigating?
1: Yeah, we definitely use ICP. It's something that we're looking to incorporate more going into the next year so we can really start fine tuning things. Uh, I think we had also, um, you, you had asked about what trace elements. Um, in addition to the three part, we, we do do iron and iodine a little bit extra, but that's been mostly the one that's shown a deficit when we've sent our ICPs out. So we've been conservatively dosing that and trying to get it closer and closer to natural seawater based on those results. But really it's gonna come down to, um, you know, getting those tests out um, at least monthly for us to feel comfortable enough to really dose a lot more heavily on all those traces. But I think there's a lot of benefits to that. And that's one of the new school of things that and I do believe in overall. You just gotta find one that you can really trust the results and, and not overdo it. You know, I tend to, to aim more towards the low side of the ranges just to make sure those traces are present um, and be cautious because, you know, those machines aren't always 100% calibrated correctly too. So you can't just take it as philosophy and just blindly start throwing chemicals in there either. Yeah.
0: So um, you've already kind of alluded to this um, in terms of the alkalinity, Kevin, but you know, key parameters, what do you guys like in terms of nitrates, phosphates, mm-hmm. calcium, magnesium, alkalinity? You know, it does vary a little bit
1: from system to system, but generally speaking, um, alkalinity usually around 8.3. Um, the calcium around 4.30, magnesium 13.50. Uh, nitrate we usually like to keep around 20 in our systems. Now, um, phosphates 0.05 to 0.1, sometimes even a little higher for the LPS softy systems. I'll say that cautiously for people just because for us, we do incorporate a lot of cleaner crew and herbivores in our systems. And because of the amount of coral we're packing in, we've found that we have to keep them at higher levels than sometimes you might need in a, a reef tank, especially at first. Uh, or else, we just have things start to kind of slow down in growth and and lose a little bit of coloration.
0: So, but the biggest thing is keeping
1: it detectable you know, overall. Yeah.
0: So, uh, Reef the Sea Forever, uh, Reef the Sea Forever made a comment: never enough flow. And um, I kind of want to talk about that because you're, um, you know, what we saw in terms of the video, it looks like you have some pretty long, almost like peninsula-style tanks, right? I mean, how how uh, long are some of those yeah. tanks? Like eight foot uh, long or ten foot? Yeah. The
1: majority of the different tanks are eight foot, you know, eight by three and eight by four for the most part, besides a few six footers in there and, and that sort of thing. So
0: talk, talk to us about flow. You know, what, what do you guys have going on in flow in terms of those tanks? You know, eight foot is a long distance ago. You know, my, my peninsula tank is six foot long by three foot wide. And I definitely found it a challenge. You know, I tried to like have um, MP forties and sixties, on the uh on the end panel of that tank but it just didn't you know seem enough in terms of flow so what do you guys do um you know especially with that eight foot long tank
1: well if you noticed our farm typically we do have pumps from both sides so that way we're not relying 100 percent on it to reach across all the way i mean i i would dread coming up with the design and flow for a full peninsula where you're trying to keep that front panel completely clear. I mean, that's actually something we've been kicking around ideas for, for a big display in the shop. So, you know, it makes my brain hurt a little bit thinking about that. But I would say for pumps that can really push distance better, um, we've used the Ciche Voyager pumps. Um, those ones are very directional. So they, they tend to get that distance really well and blow under the racks. Um, the Tunze pumps can work really well for that too. Uh, The MP60s on a lot of our SPS tanks will actually run those at more of a constant current, and then we'll have 40s next to them, creating more of the random flow and pulsing just to keep the waves chopping and and get a little bit more of that random movement. But by running the 60s at full power um, and constant current, it allows that wave, even though it's more broad, to accelerate across the tank uh, significantly better. You know, but for the average person too, you know, you're gonna to have to play around with it a lot, really. And you know, if you have sand, consider all those variables. Um, you know, longer pulses are gonna reach further. So just keep that. Yeah, mind.
0: I, 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 tried to like really resist putting, um, you know, MP 4060s uh, or whatnot on the viewing panel and, and panel of my uh, Peninsula tank, but I ended up doing it. And it, you know, it doesn't look doesn't look bad. But I have, um, you know, so now in that tank, I have, um. Let's see on on the uh, the end panel. I've got two MP40s, two MP60s, and the other side I've got two MP40s, and they're all running in the uh, Jara mode. So, um, but it's interesting that you say uh, you guys run your MP60s in the uh, 100% constant mode because I um, I had been thinking about doing that to um, to push more water.
1: Yeah, it definitely helped a lot, uh, especially on the tanks that we had a lot of frags where it seemed like the middle was getting some detritus settling uh around the plugs and and bases and we were getting a little algae growing on the um the various staged out pieces so after we started really hitting it from both sides where that flow had a chance to accelerate and kind of slam down into the racks it really kept it much much cleaner overall so that was um you know a big help for sure
0: so kevin you mentioned um Benefits in in terms of you know nutrient reduction. What else do you guys utilize in terms of keeping your nitrates and phosphates, you know, in check? Do you use uh, GFO at all, or have you um, you know incorporated macro?
1: Most of our systems do have refusiums built in, so we're exporting that way. Um, I would say we're big overall on high turnover, high flow. High input as far as the coral foods, but we also change our socks three times a week. So, you know, we're removing a lot of that and keeping it from breaking back down into the systems to keep nutrients in check. We do use GFO, um, but we tend to tread softly with that because it is very potent and can drop your levels sometimes almost too fast and stress corals out, uh, especially if they're more accommodated to higher levels. So, you know, you got to be a little careful with it, but it does work really well for that too.
0: Do you guys ever have to dose nitrates and phosphates you know and kind of like get the opposite effect where you're um you know you're dropping down the nutrients too much you, you you guys ever dose instead of like just feeding the fish more
1: yeah definitely i mean especially if things get a little out of balance sometimes you have to use those um those different chemicals to to keep things level there's a few tanks in the farm that even have a little bit of the um synthesis nitrate dosing small amounts on a regular basis just to keep up the stability and that usually comes again with just the sheer amount of coral that's packed in it just consumes so much you never really realize how much um, of an impact that makes until you get a really really you know mature reef tank and then you'll just start seeing everything just eat way way faster Um, some systems occasionally will have to hit with the phosphate, but that's usually if we've been slacking a little bit as far as coral feeding or maybe the fish feeding, or we weren't hitting seaweeds as often with with the fish. Um, then you know, might've skipped a couple of those sessions, but pretty rare on the phosphate dose.
0: What do you guys like to use in terms of a phosphate test kit? I, you know, it's tough because phosphates it's, it's a very, you know, um, precise, um, low level in our aquariums. And, um, I, I find that to be the biggest uh, you know challenge in terms of trying to find a reliable test kit for phosphate. What do you guys use?
1: We use the HANA Hearts per billion test kit. Uh, we get very consistent results with that and overall been much happier than with, with any of the other options. And, you know, you can churn it out pretty fast, too, so it works well for us. And I would say just being that we tend to gravitate on a little higher levels overall and more buffer zone, um, we don't have to worry about it being too strict as far as trying to be in a tight zone like 0. 0.02 or something like that. Um, or, you know, some people who run ultra-low nutrient systems.
0: Jake is saying that doses of potassium nitrate to the tanks twice a week to keep levels above one part per million. Um, I didn't, I didn't, uh, I didn't yeah. so you're, but you're doing, like, you guys have just a lot of, a lot of nitrate in your uh systems right you're you're talking like 20 uh um, ppms and for the most part
1: yeah 20 20 and most of the tanks Man, nuts.
0: yep <laughs> that's uh that's a lot but
1: yeah i know when i when i got in the hobby it was one of those things that was always preached to me is you know undetectable keep it low keep it you know down and bottomed out and that's one of those things because you know i I have more you know, of an engineering mind sometimes. So when I design systems, sometimes I would over-design them to where they would run just way too clean. And, and during some of the early years, that was something I struggled with for the retail systems, uh, especially with a lot of the bare-bottom tanks that we were running in the retail store and having skimmers that were appropriately sized. But for those tanks, um, it just was too much. Most of our farm is actually significantly undersized when it comes to skimming and you know that's partly again because we do have high turnover and we're very strict about our sock changes and and things like that too so you know you don't let a lot of that waste build up and break down in the system as well but i've had really good luck doing it that way i mean i would say a lot of the systems are probably half the size of skimmer than what would typically be recommended for running Nios quantum 300s on the majority of these tanks.
0: Do you guys ever uh, get cyano popping up, ryopsis, other types of problematic algae running nutrients at those uh, levels?
1: Well, you know, we're always bringing in stuff, um, especially in the, uh, the retail store tanks. So sometimes you'll have new corals come in and, you know, even some of the older systems, if you're slacking on maintenance and whatnot, or, or just over time, you might have some um, organic buildup. So, yeah, we, we, we just have pop up from time to time, sometimes bryopsis in different systems. We tend to try to treat it more naturally if we can um, with various cleaners or dosing bacterias, increasing flow, um, manual removal, um, chipping off sections of the rocks. A big thing with bryopsis, too, is you know, if you can catch it early enough and replug something before it spreads in the tank, then you'll save yourself a lot of headache having to deal with that. Um, you know, well, we have used flux in the past, gluconazole, yep. with success as well. You know, I would say that's definitely a, a, like a last resort if you can't get rid of it, you know, it does work, but you have to, you know, kind of know what you're doing and really monitor the coral, your nutrient levels and the, uh, the consumption rates on a lot of the corals too when it comes to alkalinity and calcium, um, just to make sure that nothing changes too drastically and you don't get caught off guard.
0: Yeah, I, I, I personally just try to avoid any type of, like, uh, you know, bomb in terms of, like, fluconazole mm. or, or the chemi-clean to help um, battle cyano. I just mm. think that um, – I, I know, and I've used that stuff because, you know, in certain cases it just gets, yeah, it yeah, gets, it gets extreme. But um, I guess the reason why, you know, I, I agree with you, I think that the natural means is the way to go because you just don't know how some of those uh, treatments are going to impact other things in terms of that delicate balance of the tank. You know, you might get rid of um, – you know the cyano but it could be a uh an en- an entrance uh for uh for dinos to make an appearance it's just it's it's tough to make yeah. that uh that call you know it's just uh there's a lot of unknown factors delicate balance these uh, these tanks. Yeah. i completely
1: agree i would always say tread softly and then you know if you're still having issues and you can't solve it with the more simplistic methods then maybe take the next next step if it's that much of an issue for you but You know, a lot of it comes down to just having the tank set up properly where you're not going to have those things pop up from the get go and being strict about what you're putting in the tank too. you know, a big part of that is if you're buying a rock or, you know, a coral, with substrate attached to it or a plug. You know, really inspecting that, and sometimes rebasing it as well before you even put that in your aquarium. Or if you want to take it a step further, running a quarantine tank too, which is always something I would recommend if you if you have the space for that and the time for that.
0: Yeah, I, I just set up a quarantine tank uh, earlier earlier this year. What, so what what's your process in terms of a quarantine uh, you know system? What what do you guys do at the TSA in terms of uh, when you're bringing in new corals?
1: Well. We have two processes. Um, if you're talking about just bringing in, you know, wild stuff that's more just for resale, like, uh, you know, a, a canto or a scoli or maybe some wild torches and things like that. I mean, every coral that comes in, we actually use jeweler specs. Um, you can purchase them on Amazon. They work really well as magnifiers to get yeah. in there and really visually inspect most of the stuff. I would say that's the biggest part of it, removing most of the, um, the substrate that's attached to it as well. And if there's a lot of nooks and crannies that eggs could be hiding, um, just trying to eliminate those sometimes either by removing the base or sealing it with glue. And then we'll do various dips as well um, when we're bringing coral in. And typically we'll acclimate them to areas that are isolated from common species. So that way, you know, we can incorporate tank transfers as well, um, just in case something did get dragged along. Like let's say you have a zoa colony come in and you missed an egg somehow, and there were nudies that popped up, you wouldn't be putting that right next to all your other zoa colonies. Now, when it comes to the farm, I mean, we have a much, much stricter process of quarantine before anything ever makes it in there. Um, now, if you want to get into depth on that, I can run through our process real quick, or if you have any other questions for the basic stuff. Yeah, no, let's uh,
0: let d- definitely run through that process. I'm, I'm curious to hear what you guys do in terms of that stuff.
1: I mean, I, I would say the quarantine process, especially for, you know, everything that goes into our fully aquaculture quarantine systems is probably uh, as strict or probably the strictest in the industry. Um, as far as that goes, we have a triple tank quarantine system where they're all isolated and plumbed separately. Now, everything that even goes into the system gets inspected and goes through a series of dips and transfers where it's pest free at that point. And then if possible,
0: which is pretty much
1: everything, um, except most of the zoanthids and and some of the LPS, we would remove all the substrate that could be carrying an egg. Um, Like, for example, the Acropora, you know, any of the bases you would remove completely on 100%. And we would separate the colonies so there's no chance of a dead spot in the middle where an egg could be hiding, something along those lines. So you guys, for every
0: colony that you get in, like wild colony or anything you bring in that's mariculture, the base goes off no matter what you see?
1: Uh, Not necessarily at first, depending on where we're putting it. But that's a big part of the process of transferring it and preparing it for quarantine. I would say the stuff that goes through quarantine, we've probably been sitting on for a minimum of six months trying to grow out and get healthy enough to even survive our process because the dips that we do, um, like I said, we'll have an entry-level dip where we'll run through initially with the acros, um, hitting it with a period of um, interceptor, and then we'll bear dip, rebase, seal everything when it gets into the first stage. And then in between there, it'll get four weeks of – other dipping while it's in holding. And then for redundancy, just in case anything did make it through, we have the second stage where it goes through and gets rebased, sealed, and again, bare dipped and interceptor treated before it even makes it to the last stage of QT. And at that point, it gets another month of dips. After that month, the process is repeated again, where we rebase, seal, interceptor dip, and then it's moved to the farm tanks Mm. that are actually where we grow all that stuff. And, you know, knock on wood, um, we've been quarantining stuff, you know, for I think six, seven years now, and we haven't had any coral specific pests that have made it into the farm system. So, you know, it's worked really well. I mean, anyone who's been in this hobby long enough knows the heartache of dealing with, you know, Montepore eating neuter bronze or, you know, red bugs, black bugs, white bugs, you know, operating flatworms are a big one that are just out yeah. there all the time. And, you know, just for us, um, being able to offer that to customers where they don't have to worry about it uh, is a huge advantage, I think. And um, a huge relief for us where we're not having to inspect that stuff constantly and, you know, have to do um, dips and treatments and tank transfers. And and once it's kind of in the farm, it's made it through, those things are super hardy at that point And and they, they can make it through anything, and then they just recover and grow, and we start offering them to the website. Um,
0: have you guys ever encountered sea spiders? Yeah, yeah. How, uh, how bad of a I mean, pest is snakes, a sea
1: spider? I mean, it's more of an irritant for most corals. Uh, it's not really one that we have to worry too much about, and bear is pretty good about being the most lethal, yeah. I would say. Yeah. So if we're really trying to knock things off, bears is our go-to dip. Um, for more repetitive dips in some of the holding systems, we'll use uh, less invasive treatments just so we don't have an accumulation in the system um, that can sometimes affect invertebrates. Uh, we've had systems that if we did excessive bear dipping, you know, the peppermint shrimp would just all, you know, start dying. Um, you know, other more sensitive invertebrates would have issues there too, which, you know, I'll also bring up the point. It's very important to rinse after dipping. You know, we always do two stage and then we put fresh carbon in, um, after doing dips in any of our system as well. So that's another tip I'd probably throw out there for, for all your listeners. Um,
0: what about, um, LPS and, uh, red planaria, you know, flatworms when those, um, you know, I've seen those come in on like Ghani and and, um, you Mm -hmm. know, you can see them on hammer corals and, I've dipped, um, you know, those with, uh, I think it was coral RX and, um, with not a lot of success, you know, especially with like a goniopora, where the, uh, the tentacles, you know, retract and I think they pull in the, uh, the flatworms, which kind of insulates them from the dips. So have, have you guys, uh, had, had some sort of uh, formula that works for that kind of pest with that kind of coral?
1: Uh, yeah, reef primer works really well. And obviously the bear, but you got to be a little careful with bear when you're dealing with things that are very porous because obviously it it can suck more up into the skeleton and any of the substrate attached to it. So, you know, that's where the rinsing is really more promising. Um, But yeah, you know, definitely I would say the reef primer is, is a very good dip as well that really can knock out a lot of the flatworms and things like that more effectively and less stressfully than bear.
0: Uh, do you guys go recommended dose on that or do you, um, you know, kind of go above what they're uh, suggesting on the bottle?
1: Yeah, we use recommended dosing, um, unless, you know, unless you're talking about things like, um, mushrooms and zoanthids, and then sometimes we'll, you know, if we're hitting them with RX or another treatment, we may go a lot stronger just to be safe. Since they're such resilient corals, it's usually not much of an issue there.
0: So, um, I got another question and, and folks, I'm going to remind you, uh, to ask some questions. I think Kevin, if you could hang in there for like another 15 minutes, that would be, uh, awesome. Okay. So I got, an... I'll just have a sip of water and yeah. I'll be good to go. So, um, yeah, folks, if you have any more questions, please put them in the chat. I want to talk about, um, SPS polyp extension. You know, I, I, um, I assume that, uh, I didn't, I didn't see a, a ton of fish in the actual, uh, tanks with the, uh, with the aquapor. I guess you guys have a, a system set up where you have a lot of fish. In the um, in the refugiums, right to uh, to kind of uh, tie in that aspect in, in terms of the um, having fish in the system, but um, you know a lot of folks, including yeah. myself, like to keep some angelfish that are not necessarily the best um, in terms of being compatible with all types of corals. You know they'll they'll be uh, um, you know like I love regal angelfish, and I got one in my new peninsula tank. And every once in a while, it takes a little nip at a uh, at a frag, but um, how important is polyp extension in your in your view in terms of SPS health? You know, essentially at night, um, you know SPS extend their polyps to um, you know ca- capture food at at night. But during the day, how important do you think it is if um, you know a hobbyist has a bunch of SPS, but they don't see a lot of great polyp extension during the day? perhaps due to some coral nippers like the angelfish. Do you think that's an issue?
1: I mean, a lot of times the angelfish are just nipping at the slimes on the Acropora and and not really causing any long-term harm. As long as there's enough in there where they're not continually hitting and hitting the same piece over and over to the point where it can really get stressed out and and, and hurt it long-term, it shouldn't be that much of a problem that being said, I'm I'm more of a coral guy. Where if there's iffy fish, I, I tend to stray away from them. I always try to just go 100% reef safe if I can, uh, and steer away from the angels and unless they're you know a lot of the swallowtail varieties and, and things like that that are more planktivores uh, overall. You know, definitely not a, a man to put an orange spot I'll file fish in my SPS tank either. You know. I actually tried that once and instantly overnight all the polyp extension was no, gone no. and you know it was just going crazy on that but um, yeah I mean polyp extension I do like to see because it is is one of the indicators we use for health overall and I think daytime polyp extension we, we've been able to enhance a lot of that just from our feeding habits um, sort of training the coral to extend more. Then they naturally would at nighttime just because we typically do put the foods in, uh, you know, around six o'clock each day or or even earlier if we're not shipping out those days.
0: Yeah. You know, I um, so I mentioned I have a regal angel fish in the uh, in my in my peninsula tank. And um, yeah, you know, recently I noticed some of the the frags, the polyps were uh, were kind of closed up. And then I did, you know, see that, uh, that regal picking here and there. And I was like, Oh man. So I, I actually got out, you know, and, 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 and tried to, uh, you know, fish, fish him out, but I, uh, I ended up not doing it because it's such an awesome fish. It's a, it's like a Miss Bar regal angel fish. It's, it's like my Holy grail, you know, fish to have in a reef tank. So, um, mm-hmm. you know, I'm just decided I'm going to just feed the tank some more and, uh, try to keep, Keep that uh, that little uh, fish uh, a little uh, happier in terms of a little plumper and maybe not as prone to pick. yeah
1: You could definitely do that um, those guys are always gonna be greedy I mean, I, I always loved angels too when I first was um, you know really starting to get more into SPS I had an Emperor in one of my displays and I was fortunate to have so many tanks that every time he started to like the taste of a coral I just move it out to a different you tank. but you know, he uh, he never messed with the SPS much, so I was fortunate in that regard. But um, yeah, it's definitely that, that Regal's a beautiful fish. So maybe you just need to throw a uh, a foot foot across bird's nest in there just to distract him from your nice.
0: Well, stuff. I've got like yeah. a carpet of zoanthids in my other tank. I should just yeah. probably throw a big chunk of that into the uh, into the uh, the tank with him and just let yeah. him go to town on the zoo, the zoas.
1: <laughs> well, yeah, I guess if you. Don't plan on keeping any uh, nicer ones in there term. now
0: No, those are uh, those yeah. I-, I got so many of these uh, They're not they're nothing special, but uh, you know mm-hmm. so um, Let me ask you this Kevin in in terms of if you had to give somebody advice like top three things to, to uh, Really pay attention to in terms of having success with SPS. What would those top three things be? Could be more than three
1: Well, I mean really just the initial setup design um, being done properly, you know, you never really want to skimp on equipment. You're, you know, obviously SPS can be some of the most light demanding coral and flow demanding coral. So those are big things that you want to make sure you're hitting as far as minimums. Um, the most important thing really overall to keep them happy is just keeping your parameters as stable as possible. I mean, those big swings are where people tend to have problems. So if you're a little more hands off and, you know, you don't test that much. You got to be careful, especially when those frags turn into colonies, you'll start to realize how important it is to have a doser dialed in and, and how sometimes minor changes can, can cause things to RTN, even large colonies that you've been growing for a long period of time. So, you know, just stability overall, the proper equipment, you know, good flow, good lighting, um, all those things. And, uh, you know, Stocking proper fish really not that orange spot. Yeah fish.
0: <laughs> All right, man, well listen Kevin, this has been uh, awesome any uh, any final thoughts in terms of uh, we've covered a lot of ground here uh, tonight but any any other uh, Final tips or words to the uh, folks out there viewing
1: Well, I don't know any any questions anyone had that went unanswered so far.
0: Yeah, you know throw them in throw them in the chat and 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 um, you know, if we don't answer them uh, tonight, then you know we'll uh, we'll see it on the uh, on the replay. You could leave the comments there, and and if not, then best way to reach out to you uh, guys is uh, through your website, right? Top Shelf Aquatics, and just uh, contact yep. Kevin with any questions or comments. Um, well, we got one question from Macy's Daddy. Where did their coral uh Hatterade come from? Did I pronounce that correctly? Hatterade, love the Goat Buster corals. I have all of them from TSA.
1: Oh, What's so uh, you're talking about the Ghostbuster pack? Yeah, yeah a lot of the Acroporas.
0: Yeah. The, I guess the, the, the question is where did they come from? Love the, uh, yeah. With those uh, wild colonies you guys brought in?
1: Uh, yeah, I mean, most of the stuff that's signature pieces that that we've released, they're all wild colonies, either, you know, from import uh, from Indo or, or Australia. Um, so it really just depends on which uh, types you're talking about overall. But, you know, if you're talking about everything that we have in the farm, we still grow other people's stuff, too. But, you know, all our signature pieces are our own. From wild colonies.
0: Uh, question from Insane Reaper: I have four MP40s in my 180, thinking about getting two more. What are your thoughts? Sounds like it's an SPS-dominant tank, I would assume. hmm I mean, at the end of the
1: day, you can never really have too much flow if you're setting it up properly. You just have to be really careful that you're not hot-spotting certain corals where you're getting too much constant flow, where you know sometimes you'll see the tissue actually blow right yeah. off. And, and get bare and, and see the polyps retract. So, you know, it really depends on how open your tank is. If your colonies and your rock work are a little lower, it'll allow you to get a lot more open flow blowing around. And, and then you can just maybe tone back those pumps and zone them out a little bit better to get more random flow and, and more even flow across the board. So I, I would say go for it.
0: You know, if you need to deal on
1: them too, you'll set us up on the, uh, the website. We
0: can there you you go. Up. what's your uh, what, what's your uh, go-to mode on on an mp-40 or mp-60
1: uh, It depends on the application but for a lot of the tanks if it's just Maybe a standalone on a small tank. I like short pulse um, If it's on a longer system like you mentioned earlier um, You know definitely running either a, a gyre for a long pulse As a standalone, um, or if it's incorporated with other pumps, blending constant flow with pulsing. Uh, If you're running bare bottom, uh, you know, reef crust is definitely a good setting too. But I found in a lot of display tanks with sand, you know, those different changes can sometimes end up blowing the sand out in different spots. So it's kind of hard to fine tune that setting sometimes. Uh, So you got to really pay attention to that, but that's a good setting as well, just because it's cycled so much through various modes. I like that setting.
0: Uh, RC reefer is wondering what's your choice of amino acids.
1: Uh, We use fuel from Seachem for the most part. I mean, there's a lot of good ones out there, but you know, I would say we've had great results with it and it's, it's very affordable. Um, And overall we just kind of stick with what
0: works. So, uh, Clyde MacCasero is asking, have they ever used witch hazel for RTN, STN, or uh,
1: Um, Witch hazel, no. I mean, we've done different dips with Melifix. Uh, typically for RTN, you know, it depends. I mean, we'll, we'll look at what the source might be and examine the coral and see if it's either from parameter swings um, inspect, make sure that there's no pest issues that might've caused that. Um, you know, make sure that there's no flow issues or that it didn't get stung. I mean, there's just a lot of variables there, but, you know, sometimes we'll, you know, do iodine dips occasionally, depending on the species of coral, um, and antibacterial treatments, um, in general, but usually hacking it off and kind of stopping the bleeding at that point by cutting into the healthy tissue is enough to salvage the coral.
0: Do you guys super superglue uh, the piece that you just uh, cut off there to try to like um, limit potential uh, RTN, STN going up that piece you just clipped?
1: You know, that's something that we used to do more of, but I've kind of steered away from it long-term just because when you're using the super glue and the accelerator, it, it gets really hot with the chemical reaction. I feel like sometimes it can stress things even more. Um, so typically, I mean, if, especially on Acropora, I would say we try to do more clean cuts and make sure that area is getting adequate flow and just really keep our eyes on it overall. Because so a lot of times when you smear over that healthy tissue, um, you, you can cause a little extra stress on the coral as well. Um, The biggest thing I would say is if you're just scraping, a lot of times you may have to dig a little deeper into the coral to really remove it and stop it from continuing on and and receding. And sometimes it's safer just to break up the colony into a handful of pieces and hedge your bets that way, um, rather than continually cutting back and cutting back and cutting back. A lot of times in that case, you end up getting it whittled down to pretty much nothing and you end up losing the whole piece. Whereas if you break into a bunch of small mini colonies maybe half of them survive and then you can glue them next to each other let them merge and, and form a colony again yeah
0: kind of really get ahead of it in case um you know right um all right last question for you in terms of mounting sps frags what do you guys um i'm not talking about on frag plugs you know if you're mounting to an aquascape like rock um you know mounting what Do you guys like to use super glue, the, uh, the, uh, the two-part epoxy, a combination of those? And, and if so, what, uh, what brands do you guys use?
1: Um, we use – the combination is definitely by far the best method. I mean, I, for years, tried one or the yeah. other, and they had their pros and cons. But when you mix them together, you get the, the grip and the space-filling effect of the epoxy – and the stickiness of the glue. And it seems like the chemical reaction when they actually combine um, makes for a much stronger bond. So we always try to do that outside of the tank, Um, do a little glue, then epoxy, then smear glue on there, and then kind of push it down and give it a little twist and really lock it in. Or sometimes if I'm unsure on whether or not I'm gonna want that coral there long-term, I'll actually take lots of small pieces of rock Attach the coral outside of it with super glue and accelerator to the small piece of rock and then use the epoxy glue method to put that rock on the structure, Hmm. observe the coral while it's encrusting. And if I find it's not that happy, I don't have to chip it off the rock at that point where it may have already, you know, layered on there. Um, I can just chip off the small piece, relocate that, try again until it really, you know, finds a spot that it's happy. And that's what we tend to do in the display tanks. Interesting.
0: Cool. All right. Well listen, Kevin man, I'm gonna um I'm gonna wrap this up. I really, really appreciate you taking the time to uh to be a guest on the show and and uh yeah folks if you if you have any follow up questions just reach up reach out to uh you know Top Shelf Aquatics via their website or you we could even throw some uh questions on the comments on this video and and, uh, I'm sure Kevin and, and the folks at TSA will uh be checking those out and and uh, answering any questions. So Thanks a lot Kevin, man. I really appreciate it and uh, just to let you folks know that my next live stream will be on Thursday August 26th at 7 p.m. And I've uh, got Chris Tournier from uh, Worldwide Corals who's going to be on. So it should be another uh, very interesting discussion and a very uh, cool show. So until then, be safe out there and we will see you next time. Thanks again.